Good morning. This morning's passage is from Exodus 25, verses 1 through 22. If you are joining us for the first time, you can find the passage on the screen, or there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, which you can find on page 65. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make, it, make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Over their faces, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I shall speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is the word of God. Good morning. We are in a series, as you just heard, in the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. The series is called From Slavery to Glory. This is the story of how God graciously rescues a people who will later become the nation of Israel. He rescues them from slavery and brings them into a covenant relationship with Himself. So from, that's the slavery part into glory, the glory of being with God. 
And so right now, we, we are right in the middle of this book of Exodus, and uh, the Israelites are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, this mountain that God comes down. He's already spoken to them the Ten Commandments. He calls them the Ten Words. He's already spoken to them the Book of the Covenant, the kind of the, the grounds of the covenant which they said in chapter 24, everything you said, God, we will do. Yeah, right. But that's what they said. And Moses now, he goes all the way up to Mount Sinai into the storm, the thunder, the lightning, and Moses meets with God. And now Moses hears from God these specific instructions. And from chapter 25 of Exodus to chapter 31, God gives Moses detailed instructions for building the tabernacle. Six chapters on explaining Blueprints for this place where God would find his home among his people. And God gives very specific details about the furniture, the materials to use, the colors, the shapes, the sizes, the fabrics. Six chapters of a blueprint. And if that's not enough, chapters 36 through 40, the very end of the book, record the construction when they actually put it together, and it basically just repeats everything in here and that they do it exactly the way they're supposed to. The question we should be asking is why? Why six chapters of a blueprint of a building we don't even use anymore? Why 10 chapters out of Exodus, that's a quarter of the book of Exodus. Why is that spent on building the tabernacle? Why are we studying a place of worship that doesn't even exist anymore? Here's why. Because it reveals the character and heart of God. And that's very important. Because through the tabernacle, God reveals what he is like and how we relate to him. Today's message is a home for our majestic and merciful God. Home. Take a moment and think about the idea, the concept of home. What makes a place become more than just a place? What makes a place become a home? Ever thought about that? Right? A home is a place you call your own. Whether you rent or own, it doesn't matter. It's where you go to. It's where you say, from a physical standpoint, this is the place that I get to pick, that I'm living in. Unless you're a kid, you didn't get to pick it, but you still live there. But you get to pick things like furniture and, and the colors and the layout. And, and this is your home, right? A home is a, f- a familiar space, isn't it? A home is usually a place that we have this deep sense of, of comfort, a place where you can rest and work and play and eat and laugh and cry, all of that together in one place. A home is a place of provision, right? You're nourished there. It's also a place of security. You're supposed to feel safe there. It's a place where our most intimate relationships are often nurtured. And for many of us, a home can be a refuge from the demands of of work and school and life. My family lived in a a rancher here in Bowie, a one-level home for 11 years. And then we moved two years ago to get a little extra space still here in Bowie. And and two years in, and you know what? Our kids still had this deep feeling about our previous house. We miss our home. Well, this is your home now. Why do they miss that place so much? 
because so many memories were made there. So much time was spent there. They were literally born there and they were raised there. There There's something special about home. There is something deep in the heart of every person that longs for home. But even if you love your home, you have to admit, we all have this sense of not quite being home, don't we? Like there's something still missing. You could have your forever home and still feel like something is still missing. That's because from the very beginning of time, humanity has been displaced from our true home. Ever since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were meant to live with God in person. That was their home, and it was beautiful, and it provided everything they needed. And most of all, humanity was at home with God. But when humanity rejected God, they were kicked out of Eden, right? We lost our home, and we've been living east of Eden ever since. And this brokenness in our world and this brokenness in our lives reminds us all the time that we're not truly home. Some of us feel the ache for home more than others. Sometimes trials deepen that ache for home, don't they? But we're always longing for home. Why are we even talking about this? Because the tabernacle And we're going to spend several weeks now on the tabernacle, and I want to frame it in its proper context. The tabernacle was to be God's home. It was to be a reminder to the Israelites that on this journey towards the land that he promised them, that he would be present among them, truly there. And the tabernacle was a foreshadowing of Christ himself. And not only that, ultimately the tabernacle is a picture, as Hebrews tells us, of our heavenly home, our future home, a place where we will be with God forever. Everything about the tabernacle is meant to show the people, this is what God is like, and this is how we relate to this God. It was designed to give them a taste of heaven. So let's look at Exodus 25 and learn about the significance of some of the key pieces of furniture in the tabernacle and how they teach us about God. Four lessons today. Lesson number one, big picture, big takeaway, God desires to be at home among his people. Look at verse 8 of Exodus 25. This is kind of God's summary of here's why I'm doing this. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. To dwell means to be at home. This has been God's desire and God's plan all along. From Eden to the tabernacle to the temple later in David's time to Jesus Christ himself who comes down as the tabernacle of God to the Holy Spirit who lives within us as the new temples of God and to the new heavens and earth. The Lord deeply desires to live among his people, to be be at home among his people. Do you understand God to be this way? Do you understand what this says about God? When God came down to Moses in the burning bush, Moses was in the presence of God, wasn't he? Like truly, God says, take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. It was both majestic and merciful. Majestic because it's holy ground. Merciful because Moses, you can draw near and I will not destroy you. 
And then the Israelites gather in Mount Sinai, and God comes down again, again, majestic and merciful, majestic. There's fire and smoke and thunder, and he says, don't get close or you'll be consumed. But he's merciful because he's really there. He's drawing near to his people. The, look, think about this. The people of Israel had lived hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt. They're now out of Egypt. They've never been so near to God's presence as they were right now at Mount Sinai. And yet Mount Sinai was not their destination. It was the place that they would be introduced to and enter into a covenant relationship with Yahweh, the living God. But they were on a journey to the promised land. And the question is, they're about to break camp. Eventually they're going to break camp and move out of Mount Sinai and move on this journey to the promised land. Then what? God, are you, do you only live on Mount Sinai? Who's going to go with us? How will, we, how will we know that you are with us? And the tabernacle is God's answer to that question. It would be the visible manifestation of God's presence among his people. The tabernacle is literally a tent. He'll, say, he'll describe it later as the tent of meeting. It was literally, think of a large tent. We put up a tent that Grace gives outside at Jar Place, and we get lots of people who can eat under that tent. Think of something like that. There's a tent. That's important. The tent is the same term used to describe later in Exodus to, to what the Israelites lived in. What they're, right now, they're camped around Mount Sinai. You know what they're living in? Take a guess. Tents. Great job. <laughs> they're going to move out of Mount Sinai and they're going to go in the wilderness. Guess what they're going to live in? Tents. You're brilliant. Guess what God's going to live in the whole time that they're living in tents? What's he going to live in? A tent. Not a huge permanent structure, not a castle for the king, which he is. He's going to live in a tent just like them. Do you see what that tells us about God? That God's plan was to settle among his people in the exact same living situation as them. He wasn't going to dwell in some great, great, um, great structure. He was going to travel with them, like them, identifying with his people, coming alongside them in humility. Notice verse 8. He says, make me a sanctuary. A sanctuary at that time in the Old Testament means a place where God's holiness dwelt among his people. The tabernacle was a sacred space on earth. It was literally where heaven and earth would come together. Now hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. But heaven and earth would come together. God says in verse 22, that is my, where my presence will come down and I will dwell on the mercy seat right there in the Holy of Holies, right there on the Ark of the Covenant. Heaven and earth would come together and that's where my, my presence will dwell among my people. Do you know that this is the heart of God? He wants to be at home with us. To live among us. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of the Bible. It's God's message to us. I want to live among you. No other God has said this. No, the God of Islam does not say, I want to live among you. The God of Islam says, you worship me or you be consumed. The God of Buddhism, the God of Confucianism, any other God says, I am high and lifted up and you've got to work yourself to me. The God of the Bible says, I come down to you. Even though I am holy and majestic, I am merciful. 
Lesson number two. God invites us to worship him. Sorry, where's lesson number two? Oh, uh, here's lesson number two. God invites us to welcome him through generous worship. God invites us to worship, worship him through generous worship. Got it? Is it on there? There it is. Wow, it's different from my notes. Thank you. All right. Notice that before God gets into the specifics of the tabernacle furniture, he invites the people to do something. The very first verses, verse 1 to 7, God is, is very detailed. He's saying, build this home for me. This is how I'm to be worshipped. But then he says, now, I'm inviting you, my people, to provide for this space of worship. Their giving was an expression of their worship of God. Verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. God was proposing to live among his people, but he waited for their willingness to welcome him by giving in response. Isn't that interesting? He calls the people to take up a collection of precious resources. And verses 3 to 6, gold, silver, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, all kinds of precious materials, but he doesn't command it. He can, but he doesn't. He says, every person whose heart moves him. I love that. The idea that whose heart moves him is the idea that you're so compelled you can't help but help. You can't help but help. Have you ever been in a situation where you couldn't help but give? You just couldn't help it. Our family experienced this recently. We were in Walmart shopping, and a lady approached us asking for help. Now, my wife has a huge heart, and she was like, right off the bat, yes, we will help. But we were trying to understand the language barrier. Now, I tend to be a little more skeptical. So then I was brought in, and, and, and I'm like, oh boy, what's going to happen here? But we realized she had some supplies in her hand. They were all baby supplies, baby wipes, baby lotion, baby shampoo. And we realized she wasn't asking us to give her money. She was saying, could you buy these for us? And when we realized what she was asking, there was a hesitation in us. We said, yes, absolutely. Even if I wanted to grumble, even if I wanted to ask, are you really going to, I mean, these are baby supplies. And there we go. We were compelled. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt compelled to help? Compelled to give? God was inviting his people to willingly and cheerfully contribute to the resources to build the tabernacle, his home. He wanted them to welcome him without commanding them to do it. Now, did God need their resources? No. He already told them in chapter 19, verse 15, all the earth is mine. So guess what? I don't need you to do anything for me. I am self-sufficient and self-existent. God owns it all anyway. If you think about it, everything that, the, everything that the people had coming out of Egypt, how did they get it? They, it says the Egyptians gave it to them. As they were leaving quickly, they plundered the Egyptians. They had been slaves for hundreds of years. Now they're free. God provided all these resources for them, and he invites them. Will you give a portion to help build this house for me? It was an act of worship. We sang earlier, my worth is not in what I own 
Do you believe that? And are you living in a way that shows you believe it? This was a way of showing how grateful they were to God's grace in rescuing them and providing for them. And this was their way, listen, to welcome him in their midst. This is exactly what the New Testament teaches as well. We, we, God, we worship God by giving cheerfully and willingly. And when we give this way, we show gratitude for God's continued grace in our lives. And it's a way of welcoming his presence among us as we minister in his name. Obviously, a church isn't God's house. Did you know that? This isn't God's house. If you want to talk about God's house, that's you and I. We are the temple. He doesn't live here. He lives here. But this is where we gather, isn't it? This is an important space. There should be the sense. How can we not give generously to ensure there is a place where people can encounter the living God? Do you want that? Does that matter? There are physical and spiritual needs we have as a church right now that require resources that we don't currently have. Not only that, I pray that your heart moves you to give when you consider how many people locally and globally have never even heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our calling. Just like the Israelites, God invites us to give in a way that shows we want to welcome him among us and among the nations. Lesson number three. God invites us to worship him for his majesty and mercy. After the invitation to give and detailed instructions we now have of the ark and the table and the lampstand. I want to go through each of these. I want to show you how all three of these pieces of furniture portray God's majesty and his mercy. What do I mean by majesty and mercy? His majesty meaning his transcendence. That's a fancy word of saying God is supreme. God is above us. God is, is other. There is only one who is like God, and it is God. He is transcendent. And then these furniture pieces show his mercy. His mercy, meaning he's, he's personal. He's, he's imminent, which is another fancy word. It means he's near us. He's intimate. He can be known. He is transcendent far above us. He's imminent. He's near us. He's both at the same time. And that's always the tension in the Old Testament. Until we get to Jesus and we see the fullness of it, let's look at how God shows this in the tabernacle. The first piece of furniture, the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle is called the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place that God would meet with and speak through Moses to his people. It was the only piece of furniture in the most holy place, the innermost part of the tabernacle. Nothing else in that part. Next week we'll talk about the whole tabernacle. I'll show you another picture. This is the only piece of furniture that went in there. And it's not huge. You're talking three feet by two feet by two feet deep. So it's fairly small. It's like a chest. It's made of wood, it's overlaid with pure gold, and it says the presence of God would be so majestic over the ark that it required two poles to transport it to prevent anyone from touching it ever. That's majesty. That's holiness. That's, I am beyond you, I am other than you, you don't treat me casually. Nobody goes and goes, huh, what's this thing? And kicks it around a bit and goes, oh, it's pretty solid. No. 
No, you don't get around. You don't get near it. You got to have long poles to pick it up. And later in the Old Testament, when a guy was like, oh, it's falling. I better catch it. He dies. We don't play around with God's presence. That's what God is saying here. And on top of the ark, we get detailed instructions in this chapter. He says there would, there would be this mercy seat, this cover made of pure gold, and attached to the cover were two golden cherubim, or angels. These are the same angels mentioned in Genesis 3, the beginning of the Bible, that when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they now guard Eden with flaming swords. In other words, these are warrior angels. Not like kind of nice and light and fluffy and like, oh, I want to pet this angel kind of a thing. No, there's no Cupid here, right? These are warriors. These are like, you know, think of your best superhero. They would destroy them. Maybe it should be a movie. I don't know. Verse 17. Inside the ark, they were to put the testimony. The testimony. That's the law of God. It's the Ten Commandments. A copy of the law that God would give Moses. That's what they would put inside the the Ark of the Covenant. The law was to be a testimony of God's holy standard. Again, portraying his majesty. This is who I am. I am perfect. I am pure. I am holy. And this is my standard right here. And this is the standard by which I will rule my people. It was the terms of the covenant, literally. Here's the covenant conditions. Do you agree to them? And now this is the testimony of our covenant together. And then on top of the ark was the mercy seat. Verse 22. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about what all that I will give in commandment for the people of Israel. This is where God would meet with his people and speak with Moses. The majesty and glory of God on display above his holy law, and yet he calls it not the holiness seat, not the majestic seat, but the mercy seat. Why mercy seat? Why if I touch it, I die, but you call it the mercy seat, God? That's because on the most holy day of Israel's calendar, the Day of Atonement, the high priest, one time a year, one person a year, he would enter into this most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and he would take an offering of blood from a sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, sprinkle it on the cherubim, on the wings, right there on the mercy seat, and he would make atonement for the people. Their, their sins would be covered. Their sins would be forgiven. And it was in this yearly act right here the very law of Israel that they broke every year would be covered. Their sins would be covered or atoned for. And God would say, I'll live with you for another year. You make the sacrifice right there in the mercy seat, I'll accept that sacrifice and say, your sin is covered. Your sin is atoned for. We can still be a people. Together, I'll be your God. You continue to break this law, but I will have mercy on you when you do this. So the mercy of God, the majesty of God on display in a profound way. And then look, verses 23 to 30. He describes another piece of furniture. This is called the table for the bread or the bread of the presence. 
This was outside of the Holy of Holies. This was in the second most holy place called the Holy Place. Each week, the priest would, would, lay, would prepare and bake 12 loaves of flat bread. And they would stack them in two stacks of six, just like this. And it would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Only the priests were allowed to eat these loaves. Each of our homes has a table for eating, right? It's somewhere in your home where you're like, this is where we eat meals. Why? Because there's something powerful that happens when people gather around for food and fellowship. Well, here in God's home, this is, there's a table full of bread at all times. If the bread ever goes bad, they are to make fresh ones regularly. Why? So God could eat it? No. No, he doesn't, eat, he doesn't eat bread. No, the bread was a symbol that God would always provide for us who does need bread. It was a symbol that God always wanted to be in fellowship with his people. That we share together, just like people share around a meal. Just like God provided manna for the Israelites every single day, the bread of the presence reminded, it was a constant reminder that God was committed to providing for their daily needs. Every single day there will be bread on this table to remind the Israelites every single day God would provide for them. And then Jesus comes along and he says in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our what? Where did he get that from? Our daily bread. He gets it from right here. This table symbolized God's nearness, his provision, it showed that God truly was living among them. Christian, God has, has promised to provide for both your deepest need and your daily needs. Did you know that? Your deepest needs, spiritually, God has provided Jesus as the bread of life. Jesus said those who come to him in faith will never hunger or thirst again. He truly satisfies. And every time we take communion, every time we enter, as we gather around the Lord's table, we are reminded of God's provision for us in Jesus. The Lord's table reminds us that God really is near and God really does provide. Now look, if God can take care of your deepest needs, forgiveness, intimate friendship with your heavenly father, adopted into his family, if he can take care of those deepest needs of yours, can you not trust him to provide for your daily needs? I don't know what you need today, but I know a God who can provide for every single one of them. One day, this picture is not just meant for now, it's meant for the future. One day, church, we will feast in the house of Zion. One day, Jesus will stand at the head of a table and he'll raise the glass for a toast and we're going to gather around and we're going to laugh and we're going to tell stories and we're going to know and be known and there's going to be no more sin and no more suffering and no more dying. That's the table that this is meant to ultimately represent. Fellowship with God, known by God. Right there in the middle of this, the people are to know. God is among us. He wants to know us. We can know him. And then finally, verses 31 to 40 of this chapter describes the golden lampstand. This was placed across from the table with the bread. It was made of pure gold, 75 pounds worth of gold. The lampstand is designed to look like a living tree. If you read those verses, it, it says that there are buds, there are blossoms, there are almonds on this. Why? 
Why? All, because all the stages of life are represented on this tree. All the stages of, of physical life for a plant is represented on this tree. And then, of course, just like we have lights in our home, the lampstand was to be the perpetual light in the tabernacle, God's home. You can see it looks like a menorah. This is where, this is where the Israelites get the idea of a menorah. So this lampstand symbolized both light and life because you can't have one without the other. There is no life without light. That's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. As we follow Jesus, we don't have to fear the darkness. As we follow him, we can have assurance that his life is always burning within us. And that's an encouragement to us. Lesson four. This is the so what. Here's here's the so what. In Jesus, we have an eternal home with our majestic and merciful God. Ultimately, the tabernacle as God's home points to something more enduring, more uh, all-encompassing. Because the tabernacle went away, and then they built a temple, and then the temple was destroyed, and then the people of Israel were like, ah, that's it. There's no presence of God among us. What are we going to do? How can a holy God live among a sinful people? How can a holy God, how can sinful people enter into God's holy presence? How does this connection actually happen? Don't we need a physical space? And the tabernacle and its furniture give us a picture for how God did it for Israel. But look, it's just that. It's just a picture. How do I know? Because in John 1.14, it says that Jesus is the Word. And it says the Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. You know what that word is in Greek? It's the word tabernacled. Jesus came down and literally tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. He lived just like us. God lived in a tent. The people lived in a tent. We're human beings. Jesus comes as a human being, dwelt among us. Same word as in in chapter 25 of Exodus, that God would dwell among them. Jesus came down. Jesus is God's ultimate demonstration of his commitment and desire to live among his people. Jesus is our home. God made his home among us in Jesus so that he could bring us home to live with him. This is where the majesty and mercy of God meet. Remember in the, in the, in the Ark of the Covenant, one day, a week, the high, one day a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and on that day of atonement, make a sacrifice for all people. And he would splatter the blood on the mercy seat. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This has always been God's pattern. There is always justice for our rejection of God. But Jesus comes along, and he's the ultimate tabernacle of God. And he goes to the cross, and he becomes the sacrifice, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity. He was the perfect God-man, so his sacrifice wasn't just to atone for sin. It wasn't just to cover sin and say, okay, you get another year pass, you get another year, and then you got to sacrifice again. No, Jesus comes along, and he makes a once and for all sacrifice for all time, for all people who would receive him. Just like the ark was the connection of holiness and mercy, that was what the cross of Christ ultimately was. The ark contained the testimony, the law, which the people broke just as quickly as they agreed to obey it. 
On the cross, Jesus was condemned because just like Adam and Eve, just like Israel, just like us, we have rejected God's righteous law. We want to live as if we're in charge. I want to make the rules. I want to be in charge. And we know that leads to destruction. The wages of sin is death. And so Jesus ultimately displays both majesty and mercy. The only person who has ever lived, the one who is far beyond us, came down to live among us, to be near us. And on the cross, God's holiness and justice, God's mercy and grace, in one sense, as the reformers would say, they actually collide together. How does God's holiness and mercy come together in such a transforming way? It's in the death of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is the true Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because he kept the testimony. He kept the law. And yet he died as the greatest lawbreaker ever. And yet now, through what Jesus did on the cross, through faith in Jesus Christ, our sins can be truly forgiven, cleansed. We're not held guilty for what we've done because Jesus took our guilt. And now Jesus is the true bread, the bread that we can experience intimate fellowship with God and we can trust his provision. And Jesus is the true lamp the light in which God guides us on our earthly journeys. Not through something external to us, but something internal to us. And look, the greatest news of Christianity is that Jesus didn't just stay dead, did he? Look, if Jesus died like every other great religious leader and he stayed dead, then he would just be like every other religious leader. But he rose from the dead, victorious over death and sin. And get this, he didn't just tabernacle once among us, now he tabernacles in us. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He makes his home in us. You are walking around with the very presence of Almighty God. You're not God, but you have God with you. It's your union with Christ. Do you understand what that means, Christian? That God makes his home with us. His holiness is in you. His mercy is in you. His love is in you. You don't need a physical tabernacle. This isn't the house of God. You are the house of God. And then we gather together as the people of God. What does this mean practically? It means your heart can find its satisfaction in Christ alone. Not in sin, not in success, not in love, not in money. You'll never find your identity in that. You'll never find true meaning in that. No, only Jesus is the light of the world. And when you find your light lit in him, You get to reflect his majesty and his mercy for a world that, look, is desperate for both majesty and mercy. We live in a world where people are not polarly opposed. People over here are claiming we have to show mercy, accept everyone. And people over here is, everyone is doomed. We ought to condemn everyone. And Jesus comes and says, actually, both are true. I took your condemnation and I can give you mercy. But you don't do it your way, you do it my way. You come to me. You find forgiveness in me. You find forgiveness of shame and guilt in me. And you show mercy as ones who have been shown mercy. If you're not a Christian today, can I just invite you to consider, you have to admit there's this deep longing for home. To be truly known and accepted. To be fully loved. And I would submit to you, nothing on earth can provide that. 
Only Jesus can be your everything. That longing you have for peace, that longing you have for true beauty, that longing you have for justice, that longing you have for intimacy, that longing you have for wholeness, those things are found in the presence of our majestic and merciful God. I invite you to make God your home today. St. Augustine, who lived uh, an incredibly carnal life before he became a Christian, he said it best in the first couple centuries he lived. He said, look, he said this of God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest or home in you. The greatest hope of Christianity is not just that we have our home in Jesus now, which is an amazing truth, an amazing reality, the greatest hope of Christianity is that one day when we come to the end of our lives, we will be welcomed into our eternal homes where we will be with Jesus forevermore. Are you looking forward to that home? Let's live in light of that reality, church. Let's pray. Father, we want to worship you as you have prescribed We want to honor you in ways that you have said are truly honoring. We want to love you in ways that truly reflect your love for us. We need help to do this. We need your spirit to to do now the transforming work using your word. Lord, we we confess I can't change a person's heart None of us here, by the way we speak or live, but by your Spirit, through the power of the cross and the empty tomb, we know nothing is impossible with you, God. As we look out at the challenges in our world, the challenges in our personal lives, the challenges in our nation, as we consider the weightiness of what is before us, God, we ask, we beg that you would remind us of the incredible reality of what it means to know that Christ is in us. That we have nothing to fear. That we have all wisdom, all courage, all peace, all beauty, all power with you living your life through us. Lord, may may your church, may this church be a beautiful, unstoppable force for good and not for evil, for true love and not for wishy-washy love, for truth and not relativism. God, speak to hearts even now as, they, as we seek to know you and be known by you. We pray you would make your home here with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.